I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And I hope that you are enjoying your summer. If you've recently raced, well, I also hope that you're enjoying a much-deserved mid-season break and that your performances so far have been fantastic. Today, I've got a little bit of a special show for you because I'm excited to share a conversation that I had a few months ago on The Greg Bennett Show with former professional Olympic athlete Greg Bennett himself. He is a remarkable and very in-depth interviewer, and this chat made me appreciate how much we, as professionals, have in common. Apart from the whole, you know, like, Olympic glory thing and that type of thing, I didn't quite reach there. I, well, I wasn't up to snuff, was I? I was just a mere finalist of the Olympic trials. As Baxter said to me the other day, hmm, you didn't make it, I guess you tried. Anyway, on the show I share in my athletic journey and most importantly the mistakes that I made on that journey that became the catalyst for all of the methodology at Purple Patch, what we call the four pillars of performance and you listeners will know well, endurance, nutrition, strength and of course recovery. We share our own coaching and training philosophies as well as our thoughts about resilience and remaining flexible, dynamic and pragmatic, especially over a long and successful career. Today, Greg and I both navigate full-time jobs as coaches, speakers, hosts, and of course, my favorite, husbands and parents. You know what we do? We try our best. And so, for any of you guys who are on a personal or professional journey in a time-starved life, I think this episode will resonate, and that's why I wanted to share it with you here, now, today. It originally aired on The Greg Bennett Show back in March, but you get to hear it today on the Purple Patch Podcast. It is a true coach's discussion on longevity with me, Greg Bennett. And so without further ado, I guess for today, I get to do this very simply. Here comes the meat and potatoes. And yes, it's all about me, my favorite subject. Oh, and Greg Bennett too. I hope you enjoy and I'll see you next week. Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a very entertaining and informative conversation with one of the great minds of endurance sport, coach Matt Dixon. In this episode, Matt shares his journey as an athlete and the key lessons he learned during that time to become the great coach that he is. Matt describes how he takes a holistic view of an individual when working with them and understanding their work and family life and what stresses do they have. And he focuses heavily on what he describes as the four pillars of performance, endurance, functional strength, nutrition and fueling, and recovery. He discusses how to use data from wearables and why some people will be more comfortable with data than others and why fueling immediately after a workout is so important with protein and carbohydrates. There are just so many great takeaways in this one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. All right, today's guest is a world-class triathlon coach, an exercise physiologist, former professional triathlete, and elite swimmer. Under his guidance, Purple Patch coached athletes have recorded over 350 professional Ironman and Ironman 70.3 victories and podiums, including 
multiple world championships. He's the author of The Well-Built Triathlete and Fast Track Triathlete, an Ironman University master coach and a corporate speaker to major companies on performance and leadership. And he hosts the incredibly popular Purple Patch podcast. I've been excited to have him on the show for some time as we share some of the same philosophies around high-performance sport and just life as a whole. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Matt Dixon, how are you, mate? Very well, thank you. I'm, I've got to say I'm rather humbled by the introduction, but uh, I'm mostly humbled just to, uh, to be on the show with you, Greg. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and the honour is all mine having you here. It's, uh, it's amazing that you and I haven't connected before here. It's, you know, we've been in the same circle for so long. You, you've coached so many of the guys that I used to compete against and many of our friends, including, you know, guys like Chris Liedo and Tim Reed, Sam Appleton, um, and then Laura's raced against a lot of the women that you've coached, and Meredith Kessler and uh, mm-hmm. Rachel Joyce. The list goes on, mate. I just—it's amazing that this is the first time we're chatting. It, it, it is insane. It's—it's it's one of those. Uh, you know the good news about it because I've never met you. You still retain real hero status for me. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to come crashing down over the course of this conversation, I'm yeah, sure. A, but uh, <laughs> you're still an icon in my mind. <laughs> yeah, you're going to leave this in an hour's time. You're like, I was kind of disappointed in that yeah. guy, actually. <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a flat tire. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, we had uh, a lot of. You've been mentioned throughout my show. Actually, it's like. Lance Watson, when he was on and we were talking about the Ironman University and, and uh, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, the same when they spoke. And, and so your name obviously being one of the, the founders of the Ironman University with those guys. Um, and then more recently, uh, Ed Baker, who you basically coached from in six months to be what he did was just unbelievable. Um, and he just, he just absolutely loved working with you and, um, learned so much so it's been yeah it has been amazing that your name just keeps popping up and so finally i got you on my show this is wonderful Uh, hopefully it's a lot of fun and and hopefully uh can be helpful to some folks listening yeah so let's let's rewind the clock a bit and get to know you a little bit um take us back and tell me when did you sort of first find your passion for endurance sports uh, when I, when I was a puppy, for sure, I actually grew up in a family. I have two older brothers, and so I, I would say that my my biggest schooling of one of the elements I think of of being successful in life, what I say, is is learning to overcome adversity and failure. And and I sure had that when I was young. Not I had a, a lovely childhood, but there's nothing like two older brothers to make sure that you fail every single day. <laughs> and um, and, and actually, my, my, my dad was, uh, was an accountant, but he was also a very passionate swimming teacher. And my mum owned a swimming teaching school. And so we were a sort of aquatic family. And, uh, and I sort of danced in and out of competitive swimming when I was young. And when I got to about 16, I really started to take it seriously, did a couple of years. And I found myself at the crossroads of, it, it happened to be 1992, I was 18 years of age. And uh, I'd managed to just sneak in and qualify for the Olympic trials. Hmm. And, and I went there and had one of my better performances that I had in all of my years. I, I managed a final and, and I found myself suddenly at this crossroads of going to university in England and looking to try and you know, go on a four-year journey to qualify in 96 for the Atlanta Games or have the opportunity to come to the States, study over here 
and live in another country, etc. And I, I took the latter route. And so that was the sort of genesis of me in endurance sports in, in many ways. Mm. Where, where did you go to school in the States? I did my undergraduate at University of Cincinnati. And uh, we were always somewhere in that sort of in, in folks that that follow the NC2A, we were always 12th, 15th, 18th. So not a top tier school, but good enough. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the really top swimmers were all Stanford and Auburn and UCLA mm. at the time. But uh, a lot of us international folk that were penniless uh, went to a lot of the schools down the spine of the Midwest, actually. And, um, and, and I did four years there and then went back uh, to the Olympic trials, did not qualify again the story of my um athletic <laughs> career in many ways i'm sure we'll get into that but uh but i was studying exercise physiology and and i went into swimming coaching and i was very lucky i got to swim a, a, a or a coach at a very good age group program for a few years but i i was really sort of really curious still with um with studying and uh, and i went and did my masters at university of south carolina so uh s- similar to you uh, finding yourself in Florida, I found myself living in the South and mm. that's, that's where I started coaching swimming at the division one level. And then that's where I found this sport triathlon as a, uh, as a bet basically. Oh, wow. It's uh, I just interviewed, um, he just came out, uh, a guy by the name of Brett Hawk. Mm. I don't know if you know Brett Hawk, but he was an Australian Olympic swimmer in 2000 and 2004, but he swam for Auburn and won the NCAA for them in the 50-meter, a phenomenal sprint swimmer. But then he went back to Auburn to finish his degree in 2006, and then he became the assistant swim coach, and then he became the head coach. And they actually won the NCAA in 2009, um, and he coached there for about 10 years after that. But you mentioned, you know, the big-name schools, and, and he was a part of that whole Auburn process. And the NCAA for people that don't know, you know, aren't in the US, it really is an incredible pathway for athletes coming from overseas to get scholarship, to get educated and to have just this amazing team of experts around you to help help you on your way. Did you find that or do you think, were you want, yeah, you do kind of think maybe I should have done option A and not come to the US? <laughs> no, certain, certainly not option A. It, it, it is, it's an amazing life sort of experience you basically when you're 18 you come into what what is really the closest thing to being treated like a professional athlete and having to adopt many of the traits of being a successful professional athlete in an environment where you can study at the same time you have this amazing immersive team experience i mean genuinely amazing team experience and i think that many of the the lessons that I that I got in that journey. It, it's funny, and w- when I think about performance and being goal driven and and pursuing a goal, and for me it was very very clear. When I was eighteen, I said I want to qualify to the Olympic Games, and I and I didn't. But the interesting thing is that the reward wasn't and wouldn't have actually been something that I would have loved to do, and obviously you know, every athlete can can understand or appreciate the desire to qualify or win an Olympic medal or whatever it was. And I was that next level down when I look back on it without my youthful ego that I had. It was like, look, I just wasn't good enough. But I 
received so many lessons, mm. so many sort of rewards from the journey. And those are the things that I've applied. So yeah, I, I've I've really never never looked back, and and also I, I remember Brett Hawke very well. He was very very fast. <laughs> <laughs> what what distance were you swimming? Were you a distance swimmer or? Yeah, I w- I was I came over a breaststroker actually, which are mm. always in, in track and field the uh, the steeple chasers are always. Uh, a little bit odd, a little bit maverick. And I, I say that because uh, I coached Jesse Thomas for very many years. And let's yeah. face it, he's very odd. Uh, no, he's a great <laughs> guy. Is um, But uh, I was quickly converted to a 400 IM. So uh, for non-swimmers, that's uh, 100 meters or yards of butterfly, then backstroke, then breaststroke, then freestyle. Very tough uh, a event. Brutal yeah. event. Absolutely brutal event. Uh, uh, yeah. I know you talk about the journey and that you, you touched on. I remember even the year I, you know, when I won, I made it to the 04 Olympic team, um, but it was managing a, an injury and didn't know if I was going to make it. With about eight, eight weeks before the games, I was finally able to start running. And all I remember from my Olympic experience was training with Laura. She'd go up the road on the bike and I'd, you know, hunted down. We'd be in the pool together. We'd be, you know, running. She was helping me out. And it was that real teamwork that we had that it really was about the journey. By the time I got to Athens Olympics, I did the best I came. It was it was fourth place, but it was it wasn't about that race. That race was like any other kind of World Cup at the time. You know, it was like okay, the crowds were bigger and, and stuff. But generally, when I look back now, it's like the journey is the only thing that matters. You know, and mm. I and I think that's the one big takeaway and I, especially this past year with COVID and um, it's been a lot of events cancelled and it's like. I keep reminding people, look, enjoy the process, enjoy the journey, <laughs> you know, don't worry about the deadline because quite often it's not up to what your expectations think, you know, or what you thought it was going to be anyway, you know. So when did you find triathlon after that then? So, so I was coaching at University of South Carolina as my second year of, uh, of my master's. So I had this sort of background in endurance sport. I had a I was studying clinical physiology and I was coaching swimming and uh, I actually had a friend that bet me to go and do a local Olympic distance and I went and did it. And And the sport itself is so magnetic. So many triathletes listening will understand that it, it is, there is something about the sport that you do one and it gets your claws in you. <laughs> and uh, and I just, I, I loved it. And I, <clears throat> I was it was interesting because I was in a relatively small town with, uh, you know, a small amount of cyclists, probably 30 or 40 people that rode bikes, but that really created a very tight community. Mm. And so I rode with roadies. I, and I learned to sort of properly ride my bike. I could ride my bike, but learned to properly ride my bike in a sort of more like a road riding environment. I swam and occasionally hopped in with the team. That was pretty easy for me. And then I ran like a donkey dipped in cement and still do. But uh, <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> what but, is it with you Brits and all the funny sayings? That's a good one. <laughs> oh, there, there, there are many, Greg. I hate to say, it. but um, <laughs> I love that. It's, uh, it's so. I did a year or or so with a with an amateur as an amateur, and I had a lot of success as an amateur. And I, I, I don't often tell the story, but but I will because. Typically, I just sort of skip this part because it's not that important. But I finished my master's and, and actually at the time, 
my my dad was uh, going through his last couple of months of life, and I made a decision. I was sort of almost quote done with America, and um, I moved back, and I had this amazing life opportunity as well, where for the last three months uh, of my dad's life, I lived with him and basically helped him see it out. And and he had a great life. He had me when I was when he was older, uh, so he lived till he was about seventy eight. But um, but yeah, that that was an interesting time because I would say that for the next nine months or so, I was pretty lost. And not just because of losing a parent is always not easy. It, it, it was also, well, what do I do now? And and so I I sort of lived in London for nine months. I met up with my old mates. They were all into the London club scene. I was a very naughty boy and got a terrible corporate job. And within six months thought, what am I doing here? So um, uh, I, I've always sort of had this lens of if the opportunity is there, why don't you dive in? And I, it was, I think for the first time in my life, I really just did something directly for myself where I was like, I've got to go and do this. I've got to go and see if I can make it as a quote pro. I didn't even know what that meant, to be honest. And um, and so I came back to the States, moved to the LA area and uh, very quickly managed to get a, uh, a visa for uh, supposedly extraordinary talent. I still don't know what that means, but <laughs> I, 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 I took a photo of it and put it on the wall. <laughs> exactly. Because in the world of triathlon, I promise you I was not extraordinarily talented, but um, I was a, a big loafing giant with a pretty big engine that could suffer through the swim and bike and then count the uh, the dollar bills going away as people pass me on the run. But um, but yeah, so I, I, that's where I found it and that's where I competed as a uh, as a professional for for four or five years oh you did compete so how old were you then and what years were those i was that was sort of late late 90s uh into the very early 2000s and um and so yeah it was it was on the back of uh, in fact i'll never forget when chris liedo first reached out to me for coaching and he asked me a great question he said why should you coach me? I I used to race against you. I know you very well. I used to beat you handily. And, uh, I said, yes, you did. And that's exactly why, because I learned all the mistakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> I don't want to learn from somebody that's just won everything their whole life and hasn't learned anything, right? Not, not gone through. But but yeah, I had, I had some, you know, look, I was a middle pack sort of pro, but what I had in my my favor in some ways is I had the swimming background. So I was always at the the head of the swim, you know, whether it was going and racing against Waldo and, uh, and Simon Lesson at Alcatraz and being able to swim with them. I was actually at least in that part of the race. And then I became, a, I guess, a pretty strong bike rider. And, uh, you know, as, as, as I was competing at 195 pounds, I'm a, I was, I'm a, I am a big guy. Mm. I was never going to be uh, really, truly at the world-class level. It just wasn't good enough. And interestingly, I will say tangentially, now that I've had the opportunity to coach a whole swath of really elite pro athletes, I also wasn't athletically smart enough either. I was, um, and this comes to sort of a, the part of the story, I guess, that, that many people know, which is 
I had great work ethic, but I didn't have enough autonomy. I, I was too subservient to coaches. I was, a, I guess, a bit of a pleaser. And, uh, and I absolutely managed to drive myself into the ground with, with this very strong work ethic that I had and ended up with sort of chronic fatigue. So the splattering of decent, good results that I did, I, I did actually manage to win a half Ironman, Vineman, if you remember that race. Ah, yeah. Um, well, congrats. But, that's, you know, yeah. that's just not a hard. That's a big one, mate. No, but <laughs> I, pr I promise you, it's actually historically amazing. You go back and you look at the story of the winners, but this was actually one year that was a very thin field. So uh, <laughs> you take the opportunities. Your humility uh, is unreal. Just say, yes, I won Vineman. Okay, on. okay. Go on then. <laughs> Let's go big ego. But um, no, but it was, that was there was a tipping point in some ways. And I, yeah, I, I very quickly had a plateau, deep fatigue, physical and emotional burnout, whatever you would like to call it. It was, uh, it was a pretty horrible place to be for probably two years of my life, actually. So what do you think that, you know, I've talked about on this show a bit, burnout and adrenal fatigue. Do you ever get tested or, or, or get a little bit deeper into exactly what that was? I mean, because I, I think we all face it at different times in our life, quite often transitions or like you said, if we if we just bury ourselves in, in one thing. I, I had Dr. Maroon on, um, neurosurgeon for the Pittsburgh Steelers, fascinating story. Um, but in his 40s, he, you know, had burnout, big time burnout. His wife left him with his kids and lost his job. His dad passed away and went from being one of the world leading neurosurgeons to pumping gas at the local truck stop. And and, and then had to sort of rebuild himself. And so with you, when we're talking about burnout, was it just that physical punishment to the point that the body just didn't have any adrenals left or what was it exactly, do you think? Yeah, I. so I think that we have, it's a very foggy thing because it's interesting, the story that you just mentioned there, there is always the physiology of it. There's also the psychology of it. The mm. emotional component mm. is very hard to break them apart. I think mm. the origins of how I did this to myself was, uh, was I, I think a massive amount of work training in my case. So really high stress undervaluing, supporting that hard work with recovery whether it's, you know, I never, I never had the courage to go easy. I never had the courage to back off. I like how you put that, by the way, the courage, because it's it, true. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, an, another saying that I have, it takes courage to recover. But, uh, and on top of it, the factors that even at that time were almost afterthoughts. I mean, it, you grew up in this, there's a, there was a tough man side to the sport that still really hung on. And factors such as nutrition or hydration or sleep were, were you know sleep deprivation was almost a badge of honor and um and nutrition was yeah eat a lot of food almost and and I didn't I think I strayed to uh very much under fueling relative to the demands of the sport and so so I think that a lot of the tenets of what takes sustainable performance consistency in training and be able to achieve positive adaptations from the hard work that you're putting in I, I was self-sabotaging and I, and what happened was, you know, I went to every quote expert under the sun across a broad spectrum. And if you looked at my blood panels, I had the, 
I had a choice. I could either have the testosterone of a four-year-old boy or an 85-year-old man. And, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it wasn't a very impressive profile. Either way, not, not, you don't want either one. <laughs> it, it, exactly. So, but the one thing is it wasn't viral. It was genuine systemic fatigue that it, it was bad enough that I couldn't exercise. I couldn't bring myself to exercise emotionally or physically for, for a good year and a half or so. Wow. And what did, the, uh, what did the rebuilding look like then? I mean, you put yourself in that hole. It it was a it was an arduous process. In fact, uh, you will know her very well, but I, I at the time I was good friends with uh, Wendy Ingram, who was uh, based in LA, and she said to me, "Go to San Francisco. Just get out of this environment, go away." And you know, her take was you just need a new environment and go and work it out sort of thing. But I actually took that advice, and it was probably a year where Firstly, the first action was to t- turn my back on the sport. So mm. I'm no longer doing this as a pursuit. I've destroyed my body, whatever it might be. And um, and then it was rebuilding with a, a ton of sleep, a ton of rest, probably going through some dark times of, of you know, the, the direction, the purpose of, um, of really what you're doing. And um, really focusing on good eating, et cetera. And then it was just incremental, but it's it's not a light switch. It's not binary. And I think that as I started to recover, I also had to make, coming back to the physical and emotional connection, I had to make a mental decision to not be owned or defined by this. And, and it was very easy. And, and I realized, hang on, I'm really boring. I, all I'm thinking about is my body. And if I go to a dinner party, I'm tired and I don't want to be boring. And so I, 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 there was a switch and I think it was in part because my body was recovering, but there was also an active participant of, I'm going to commit, I'm going to move forward. And I will say the reason that I do think it is worth spending just that five minutes on, woe is me. Oh, look, I wasn't good enough. I haven't wasn't going to be world class, and I did this to myself. But as a coach, this was absolutely the very best thing that could ever happen to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and coming out of coming out of that chapter of my life in many ways, I think that those eighteen months where it sounds like I was just sitting on the couch and being miserable, I was actually intellectually still present enough to really look at the landscape of the sport and and look at, yeah, the, the world-class level, but also the amateur level. And what I saw at the time was me just being a slightly more extreme example of a lot of people that were working hard and not yielding positive adaptations. They were as I as I like to say, they're walking around in the fog of fatigue. They were fit and fatigued. And I and I, when I started to coach triathletes, I already had the swimming coaching background and I started to coach triathletes. I got very, very interested with my background in physiology around stress and particularly applying training stress within the context of the rest of stress that we must cope with in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that became the puzzle that I became really passionate about and trying to both, both because I was lucky to actually for pretty early in my coaching career, start to coach pros 
and that was really passionate. But I had this equal passion that's that's probably overtaken my passion now, which is to help people do this sport. That's a wonderful sport that should be healthy, that you sh- that should actually lift up the rest of your life, and and try and help people do this sport without it dragging them down, making them tired, be at the expense of whether it's their relationships, their work, whatever it might be. And this is why I wanted you on the show. You see, it's that, it's that kind of a mindset, the ability to look at it all as a holistic view, you know, and, and, and like you said, rebuilding yourself, going through that sort of a, a darker period, coming out, then you've put together a platform that understands, okay, it's not just put the blinders on and do one thing really well. If you want to be exceptional at anything, you got to work at everything you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And it's that, that kind of mindset. I've got to work on my sleep, my nutrition, my relationships, my, you know, my sleep, every, everything about it. Um, and, and since then you've, you've built a business out of getting people, you know, back on track or to the top of what they need to do. Obviously the professional athletes are performing, but you've got a lot of executives that you work with. So just, if I was to look if I was to come and work with Matt Dixon and, and said, look, I want to work on my physical active side, how would you look at me and say, right, Greg, what this is the right volume and intensity that you do? Or do you would you look at me and go, Greg, you're you're overtraining? Because is that what you see in most people? Uh what let me ask, am, am I talking to Greg the uh the Olympian or am I talking to Greg the business owner? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greg, Greg, the the has been business owner. Let's let's talk about okay. that. So so I, I'm working away here. Um, I've got family of kids. I, I've basically got an hour each morning to do some work, uh, do some training. Sorry. How do you, how do you sort of? Is this how you do it? You kind of just interview them and figure it out. How do you move forward there? Yeah. So so it's a great question. And the reason I ask that question, by the way, is because world class sport is. I, I take a slightly different lens, even though it's basically the same methodology. I take a different lens because with Sam Appleton, you mentioned his whole life should circle around the tenets of going after world-class performance. It's unapologetic and it's appropriate, mm. but I, I take the same methodology and principle and apply it to an everyday person, Greg, the father, the business owner, and it's a, it's an integration and optimization challenge for you. And um, and so I really pass out why I asked who am I talking to. So the first thing, the first thing I, I think that I should dispel is I always hear something, less is more. It's like, well, that's that's not true. Not, like doing less is not more. That's not what it's about. The one that what you are looking to do as a coach or as an athlete, is to optimize your performance. You want to show up in your goals, your races, and you want to improve as an athlete, and you want to have your very best performance. In fact, anyone that I've worked with has always been united by a simple fact that they want to improve. doesn't matter whether it's pro, doesn't matter whether it's a first-timer. The key with an amateur is that I want them to improve without costing other elements in their life. In fact, mm. I want them to lift the other components. And so we are we have a more complex, more challenging situation of which we can boil it down to mostly habits and actionable things. And I and I think that 
the mistake that many coaches make is to have a predefined training program. Okay, you want to get ready for an Ironman, you've got to train X hours a week. Mm. You want to get ready. Here's your 12-week program. (laughs) Exactly. And that's great, but life is not a spreadsheet. Mm. It's dirty, it's dynamic, it ebbs and flows, et cetera. And every human being is managing a whole bunch of different stress, stress from work, stress with family, sleep, travel, when we were allowed to travel, um, self-stress, financial, whatever it might be. And so the first thing that we do, you, you talk about um, having a discussion or an interview. Some athletes are woefully undertraining, some are grossly overtraining, some are getting it right. But the key is to develop the mindset. So rather than take a training program and say, this is how I do it, go and do it, Greg, I start at the other end of the equation. And there are two main things. The first is to really get a landscape of your life. Okay, what are your life commitments? What are your work commitments? How are you sleeping? What are your habits around eating, et cetera? And really get a baseline called sort of template of how many hours and what the structure of a regular week might look like. Mm. And then what we have, once we have that picture, is a certain amount of hours in an average week that we can play with. And so for some athletes, that's six, seven, eight hours. For other athletes, it's 10 or 12 hours. For other athletes, it's 25 hours. But it's with those number of hours then that I as a coach must apply the training. And and then making sure that I build the program in a way that it's got a little bit of wiggle room, that if life ebbs a little bit and you have more capacity, more energy, we can actually add more physiological stress from training. And if it flows, well, I've got kids tournament or I'm traveling for the week going from San Francisco to New York or whatever it might be. And then without losing trajectory, consistency, I can reduce some of the supporting training and maintain the main performance drivers. Hmm. And that's an educational process. So that's part one. Part two is more simple, which is very simply, if you are going to be coached by me, by Purple Patch, it's a mindset of what training is. And it's not for the triathletes swim, bike, run. It's really providing equal emotional and practical value to four main elements, which is, yes, the endurance training you're doing, but also I strongly believe in integrating strength and conditioning, mobility, and everything that falls under that bucket. Some really simple but important habits around fueling and nutrition and embracing recovery, not as an afterthought, but as a part of the program. And those four things, we call them purely for education, not to be cute or for branding or marketing, purely for education. Those four pillars are the program. And mm. when you combine the education and, and mindset with that methodology, it empowers people to be able to start making decisions. Do you ever, and this is something my wife Laura and I often laugh about when it comes to coaching executives, um, do you ever interview the spouse? Because we always feel like the guy that's going to, or the woman that's going to come to us and say, look, I've got 12 hours a week to train. I always feel like it's almost worthwhile. Should we go talk to the spouse and find out exactly how many hours they really do have to train by the time they take the kids to soccer practice and everything, everything else? Have you ever thought of doing that kind of approach? Uh, uh, you know what? <laughs> it's You know what I love to do is uh, if, if we do training camps and a lot of our executives will come on some of the 
the training adventures we take, we always say, bring your partner. Bring, bring your partner. It's great because you really get the inside story there. And, and <laughs> it makes it really fun. But, <laughs> but yeah, interesting. Whenever I start working with an executive and, uh, you know, it, 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 I'm not sure if you find this or if you've worked with, I, I work with a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, a lot of tech founders and, you know, uh, and it's an amazing, it, it's amazing because you, you end up being helpful beyond the sporting life for many mm. of them. You actually mm-hmm. end up, and I'm not a fan of the phrase executive coach or life coach. I don't see myself as that, but the only way to be successful as a coach of these people is to understand the fabric of their life, their working life, their home life, etc. And the solution you're providing is not to have them hit the training, is to have them create consistency and be able to be present in really the three main areas that are important to them, their work, their family typically, and their sport. And so you've got to immerse yourself. <laughs> I will say, I don't make it a prerequisite. If you're going to work with me, I've got to first interview <laughs> your partner. But but I think it's a wonderful idea because you really <laughs> would get a great snapshot <laughs> from it. That's for sure. I know. We just we just find it uh, um, amusing. And, the, and, and there is, I remember Laura was racing the Boulder Ironman and I went, I was cheering her on and a woman next to me was holding a sign. If, if you're still married, you didn't train hard enough. And, and and it's quite a funny sign, right? It's, but there's some truth to that, that I, that I think we, we need to do better at being less consumed and less addictive to this amazing sport of triathlon or whatever pursuit you're following, but, and step back and ask ourselves, where's our energy going to be spent and, and how do we perform better? Because I, I think when our relationships are good and our mental and emotional approach to life are in a great place, it's amazing how physically you can perform so much better. And, and like you said, you're rested and, and recovered. Um, so that's the executive side of things. Well, how about shifting in the professional athlete? Take, say, a, a Chris Liedo, for example, when he came to you and said, you know, you st- said at the start of the show, he said, you know, how are you going to really be able to help me? How did you work with him and and progress his career? Because with you, he really accelerated and did incredible things. Yeah, he, he he's. I, I think Chris's story is a story of athletic bravery, and uh, and high intelligence. And th- there's a reason that Chris has a great amount of respect among other pro athletes, and uh, and so I'll. I'll I'll break down his story because I think it's really interesting for listeners, whether they're world-class or not. The the majority of the pros that I coached uh, during and then following Chris were, were developmental. In other words, I took them, I worked with them from when they were an amateur through their pro career. So Sarah Piampiano, Jesse Thomas, uh, long-term projects, and, and only a few athletes and I love that. That was my real passion. Only a few athletes, Rasmus Henning that, that I worked with towards the back end, Luke Bell, but Chris Liedo being obviously the prime example, did I come in where they were pretty much already world-class and they were towards the end of the career and they were looking to sort of squeeze the sponge and just get either the last lift, the last performance. 
And, and the reason that's important is because what Chris had done up to that point in his career, I, I didn't look back at that time and say, oh, you were doing it wrong. The key is that Chris came to me when he was either late 37 or 38 years of age and how he had been training in the last couple of years would have been wrong for then. And so there's, you have this saying that's not a great saying, uh, you know, in this environment that we're living in right now, but evolve or die. Uh, basically said to Chris, you need to evolve. And what you were doing when you were 28, 32, 34 was great and fine, but now you need to actually turn things upside down. And he was training probably 30 to 35 hours a week. And we went through a very similar process to what I talked about, what I, what I might do with an executive. And the diagnosis, if you want to say that, I said, goodness me, you have never done any strength really, you know, like, and I feel like that's important. You are chasing by doing your 30 to 35 hours a week fitness, but how much fitter can you get? You've been doing this sport for 12, 15 years. How much fitness can you get now? And you're woefully under eating and you're under prioritizing sleep. So we come back to those same three pillars of the four. And so to be honest, I just said to him, look, this is what I think we should do. And, uh, and, and I should add every year that he had been a professional, he'd always been sidelined with some major injury as well. Uh, not, not always musculoskeletal, he'd broken his wrist on a bike crash and stuff like that, but a lot of musculoskeletal injuries as well. And so I said to him, look, we need to create this magic word consistency. And I want you showing up. I talked about fit and fatigued earlier. I want you showing up to Hawaii fit and fresh, not desperate for it to be over because the training's been so hard, but just eager and enthusiastic. And so the, the major intervention we did a lot of strength work. I reduced his training hours by a third. He went down to 20 to 25 hours a week max. Uh, we made those training hours, more of them easy. But when we went hard, it was the big frying pan. I had him do a lot of terrifyingly hard work, but I wanted him to perform in that. And I wanted to create a sense of performance predictability around his, his high performance. And, um, I wanted to maximize his uh, his bike strength, and uh, and then on top of it, I I had him eating probably a thousand to fifteen hundred calories a day more than he had used to. It's pretty hard to tell an athlete train less, eat more, sleep more. You're going to be fast, and <laughs> and, um, and, and and the truth is, you know that he. That's why I think it's so brave because at that part of the year where you you're coaching by at, at that stage, I was pretty unknown. I'd had a, a little bit of success with a few athletes, but to actually put your trust or commitment, I think trust is different than commitment, to commit to my process and to go and do it all wholeheartedly. It was, it was really amazing. And, and the good thing is that pretty quickly he got validation. I kept him away from racing Ironman and he did a lot of half Ironman, but he was really running well off the bike. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And, um, I'll never forget two things happened going into 2009's Hawaii. It was right at the point of when Twitter was coming on board. And you'll probably remember this. Everybody had to tweet their workout. 
And it's it happened. It was probably five weeks, four, four weeks out of the Hawaii Ironman, and um, and a lot of athletes were already on the island. He was still in Danville, in California, just outside of San Francisco, and I happened to have him going through three or four days of what I call clean out, like allow the work to marinate, really clean out, so that then I could. In the final two or three weeks, I could actually keep the rhythm of training the same and not have him feel flat. So familiar, but just a little less work for the final block. And so he was literally swimming 2K, running 30 or 40 minutes, going for an easy spin. And on the island, there was a big workout that happened with 10 athletes, probably six of his high competitors, where they swam the course, biked the whole course and ran to the energy lab. And you know, three quarters of the race, and he, I don't know if he called me and he said, "This is ridiculous. You know, this. What are you doing?" And internally, I thought, "Oh shit! I hope I'm doing the right." You know, so, yeah, you know yeah. like all right, you know, so, so brave front. This is it. But the week of the race, I'll never forget. He came to me. I arrived in Hawaii a few days before the race, and he saw me. And he said, "You know, after this race." do you think we should go and do Arizona in six weeks time? And I came home and I said to my, said to my wife, Chris is going to fly. I said, he's so mentally fresh and so excited to be here. He's going to do great. And that was really the genesis. That was actually where we talked about being fit and fresh. Like he had every element of fitness that he could draw on off of his wealth of physiological development over many, many years. And so I think it's important to for me to acknowledge that his success wasn't some fairy dust that I sprinkled on him in the last year. It was off of the back of all of the hard work and a lot of the good work that coaches had done prior. It was just that he had the courage to pull back and evolve in his last two or three years of the sport that that really catapulted him. Well, it's you, you allowed him to freshen up. Uh, it's yeah. like, I think... Personally, if I look at my own career, it was like I had my years with with Brett Sutton in the late 90s where I learned how to train very, very hard and I got very, very fit. Then I went to sort of Lance Watson in the early noughties and, and I felt like that I really freshened up a lot and, and started to really enjoy the sport again. But it really was when Laura and I started to coach ourselves that we started to learn how to win and a bit like you started to put all these kind of pillars of performance in place and prioritize them. You know, and for me... I think I was probably similar to you in the sense that you said earlier you weren't athletically smart enough. Mm -hmm. I think to some degree that was me. I was a little bit of a bullet a gate. I love the hard work. And I came from the the school of the 80s and 90s where hard work was everything. And and fortunately I had Laura that what we started to do for me for all the major championships and the big money races and things was two to three weeks out I'd hand my whole training program over to Laura and I'd say, rest me up. Wow. And, and it, it took the same kind of courage that you talk about, that commitment. That And I go, right. And she go, all right, Greg, today you're just doing a 2K swim and a 30-minute run. I'll be like, okay. <laughs> you know, but it, I allowed it, – it, it really became a powerful little weapon to have her in my back corner where I would do most of the overall training program for both of us through the whole year. But she was very good at the tapering. And she could see me better on the outside. She could see – you know, if I was short with her at dinner, you know, well, hang on, you're tired, but you don't see that as an individual. You just, you're just pissed off because something happened at dinner. You know? And so it's nice to have that person, that person that can freshen you up, that person that can see you 
you know, better than you can see yourself because under that fatigue, you're not thinking clearly and you do make dumb decisions. Um, so I, I think that was just fantastic. I think I got to race. I didn't race Chris very often because I really didn't go to the longer racing until sort of 2012, 2013. I think we did our – the last time we both raced each other was uh, Lance Armstrong beat us both at the Hawaii 70.3 and it was all the 40-year-olds. I think Lance, Chris and I were all 40 at the same time in 2012 and um, that was Lance's very last race. <laughs> I, I remember it well, and uh, yeah, I, I um, it, it just in, it, on your journey there, you know, you, you talked about obviously two well-known and well-respected and, and very successful coaches, and then y- your voice sparked up when you talked about your last years, and it, you must have been having fun in in those years with you and Laura. I mean, it's it just sounds like a great situation, and and you actually had some real autonomy, the fact that you were building your program. So you're a quicker learner than me, that's for sure, Greg. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> I, I, I laugh at it. I tell my sort of story of learning how to win and, and really, you know, it was mid-30s. I'd been in the sport since I was 15, so I don't know if I'm that quick at learning, mate. <laughs> that's 20 years to try and, and I'm true. not even sure we got to perfect. But uh, <laughs> And I think Crowey said the other day on this show, he's like, look, there's no, no such thing as – perfect but what we're after is progress over perfection progress over perfection so we did we did make a few big big changes and a bit like you it was those kind of getting your head around have optimizing your life to optimize a performance you know a yeah. one-off performance requires everything else to be in place you know and i mean you've you've talked about sleep and recovery how do you prioritize that in your programs and then how are you are you able to quantify it, measure it, or you just sort of see how athletes feel? It it's the it, it's it's funny because I, I I have become I think a little known as uh, some people from the outside think that I am the anti-data luddite. Uh, coach and some people say, why don't you coach with more science? And it's like, well, hang on. I, we should remember that my background is clinical physiology. I did. Yeah. And I have. So I think that data and tracking is a really interesting uh, side of the sport and, it, and it's here to say. So, so I think it, it's worth a little investigation. I think that Measurement of data, tracking of data, it, it objectively, quantifiably is very, very useful. Mm. And almost every athlete that I work with utilizes a power meter, most a heart rate monitor, uh, will track their various wellness scores. Many of them use any of the other measurable devices, whoop, or whatever it might be of their choice, et cetera. And it's all very useful. As long as it doesn't shackle them, it doesn't paralyze them, because in absolute harmonious tension with that whole side of things is the critical component. In fact, we were just sort of laughing about maybe we weren't the smartest, but the I like to call it the inner animal the sense of well-being, the understanding, the pausing and coming up for perspective. 
when people become a slave to the data, whether it's I need to go out and hit X power or I cannot put a step I cannot put my running shoes on because this band tells me I'm in the red or whatever it might be <laughs> an end of conversation you 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 are my my equivalent is great I'm glad that you've got GPS but why did you drive your car into the lake because your GPS told you to go there you still have to as a, as an animal because uh, we are animals we have to understand that physiology is 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 this really dynamic thing and and I think actually one of your ex coaches I once saw him once say we're not building a bridge here and that's really true and so I think that you have to or, or I think that my approach is a healthy balance of utilizing and leaning into data and metrics and a part of that depends on the athlete so if I coach a an engineer who is very data driven and has mm. absolutely every gadget under the sun that i'm going to let them absolutely embrace that side of them but i'm going to challenge them consistently to think and to feel and to ask themselves a daily question such as how do you feel and then put the <laughs> to data, an engineer <laughs> to, to an the engineer, engineer. <laughs> well I, I, I'll, t I'll i'll tell you a story so I, i'll tell you a story it gives you actually a very real case study and it, it because yeah. he won't mind me saying this but i i i have coached since 2010 I, ironically i was coaching chris at the same time as as an age grouper who who competes nowhere near the level of chris but his name's pasquale romano and he's the ceo of a company He's top of mind because uh, he he runs a company called ChargePoint. They're uh, they mm. they do all of the charging stations for the cars nationally. You know, like plug your Tesla into ChargePoint, blah 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 blah. And um, he, he's an engineer, and he he came to me and he has every gadget under the sun. He color coordinates his socks. He's you know he is an engineer through and through, but. Uh, he is an athlete evolved because he has learned to utilize that side, which is really beneficial because it can provide lessons, perspective, and unarguable objective data into your matrix. But on top of it, he has become so well equipped at feeling and deliberately riding with a power meter on, but not looking at it and really trying to get the feeling of things and then reviewing it. Mm. And, and he's an athlete that's just continually, as he has got older and older, I've been coaching him for more than a decade now, he's consistently got faster and faster and faster and faster. And of course, it, for him, the journey is not just, oh, I want to qualify to why or want to win. It's so that he can be a more effective leader, show he can, so he can be really healthy, show up for his family and stuff. But that's a great example of leveraging data really well. Mm -hmm. And and so <laughs> to, to answer your question, so I'm, I'm sorry I rambled too much, but uh, to answer your question, I really encourage athletes to utilize the, the tools, the measurements, et cetera, but I never want them to make a decision on whether to push through or pull back, whether to hit a hard training session or wait till the next day to hit that session without first also asking themselves how they're feeling and what's the context. And, and I'll say one more thing very quickly. Mm -hmm. An athlete 
the data will give you uh, measurements of anything in the moment. Where it becomes really interesting is over the course of time. And that's really interesting. And the most powerful thing an athlete can do is the thing that many athletes do not do, which they tend to live in the moment of just, okay, what's the swim? I'm going to hit the swim. What's the bike? I'm going to hit the bike. And they just become box checkers. Done, done, done. And their validation of the program success is I did all my workouts or I didn't. But if you can get an athlete to start to leverage data and at the same time, every every day, every 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 week, they can pause and come out and say, why is this happening? So I'm really tired today. You pause, you come up and say, well, what's happened over the last week? Well, I've had this and this and this and this and this with my life, or I've been working really hard with training. Oh, interesting. Or why am I feeling really good? Well, I got really good sleep three days in a row. My haven't got much work stress and training's been good and consistent, but it hasn't been daunting. Wow. Mm. Because that's when you can start to learn. And when you can start to learn, I can become less relevant because you've got more autonomy on your program. Mm. I, I think uh, you're spot on with the data. I think, you know, Crowy, Craig Alexander and I were chatting about this same thing. And you know, what I used to do, even when the SRMs were coming out and everything, you know, the, the bike power meters in, in, you know, 20, 25 years ago, whatever, uh, we were kind of, I would use it for a year or so and then put it away for a year or so. Or I'd even do three months on, three months off. But whenever I thought that I was fatigued or couldn't handle that information, I just would take it off. And we were laughing about in that in that episode, um, how Andreas Raylett, used to ride with his SRM power meter under his seat. So he couldn't actually see it, but he'd have the data collected. And, and I think that was a really brave way of doing it. You know, it's this kind of, I'll just, I just want the information after the race. I don't need to be able to watch it while, while I'm doing it. So he had the information, but he was never going to the data. Um, it's interesting. I haven't used products like Whoop um, for the sleeping. I... I was looking at those aura rings for a while ago, but I think that one of the reasons I was a reasonably successful athlete is I, I have a fair bit of anxiety and self-doubt. And I don't think those things would help someone like me. 100%. I think, I think someone like my wife, Laura, who's more of the, she's a great balance between having tremendous sense of feel, but also has an engineer mindset. She can compartmentalize very well. You know, whereas I take everything, you know, somebody says, I, you know, I don't look good in that swimsuit. I take it. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like I'm far more reactive to, to information. And whereas Laura can just sort of compartmentalize. And, and I think that's, that's a big step forward to somebody be able to use data, you know? I, I, you, you're so spot on with this. These these things make them sound like they're the devil, but these things can be an additional source of stress. Well, my sleep's broken, so I'm going to start tracking it. And now every night, if I if I move at all, it's going to disrupt my sleep score. So I'm I'm going to lie here <laughs> paralyzed and get stressed. It's just a disaster. And, and and I think it's a broader point. Most of what we're the vast majority, and. It, it, I'll tell you a brief story to example. You, you know Tim Reed well, another amazing athlete. And Tim Tim falls to exactly the same type of 
uh, and he'll be very open about this, but very similar to you, he would stray towards anxiety. And and he is absolutely prone, or was when I started to work with him, to overcomplication, paralysis of analysis, etc. And it, it, when I work with Tim, I, I I managed to get him to, as we called it, nail the basics. So over the course of the entire season, you can only think about five or six things and nothing else. Really basic. Go easy in easy days. Try and sleep well. Fuel after every single workout. You know, really basic stuff. And don't overcomplicate it. You can only touch your bike position once. And once it's set, <laughs> that's it. No more effing around. And... But the the point is, and, and that emotionally freed him up to get on to do that because by nailing those very basic, and here's the most important word I'll probably say today, habits, if people can generally prioritize sleep, have really basic habits around good quality nutrition, eat enough, et cetera, if you nail them, you're probably 97% of the way there. Mm. And it, it, it's a... Whether it's equipment, whether it's nutrition, whether it's sleep, whether it's any aspect, the overcomplication of it can be another source of anxiety, complexity, and getting people to make poor decisions and make it another source of stress in their life that they don't need. So <laughs> probably my best answer was in one sentence, I boil it down to really simple habits as much as I can, coming from a place of understanding the physiology. Mm. No, I think, I, look, I, I think we could talk about data and like you said, <laughs> for, for a long, long time. I I think it could be really useful if you know how to have fun with it too. I think, you know, Form Goggles sponsored this show and, and I haven't swum for a while and I started swimming again and I have fun with it. You know, these mm. Form Goggles, they put my heart rate there and they have, the, they have my pace and the, I'm not trying to be a world champion athlete. I'm having fun with the kids and then I'll swim, you know, a couple hundred meters in the pool and I just want to see how my cadence affects my speed and power, blah, blah, blah. I'm having fun with it and if it becomes not fun, I put them away. You know what I mean? It's like that ability to use it and then turn it off. Are you recommending any of your clients, you know, we talk about having sleep, you know, having a cool, dark, quiet. Are you? Do you use any products? Because I'm using a chili pad, not sponsored by them by any means. I just like it. Um mm-hmm you know, to cool the mattress. Um, are you doing anything specifically like that? Uh, a lot of education around what is trendily called sleep hygiene. So, um, I, I do work with a lot of executives and, uh, you know, in our prior world, a lot of travel. So we do a lot of stuff around, uh, Mm. uh, light cool temperature when they go to hotels, um, how they can set up the environment appropriately, cool, dark, you know, quiet, et cetera, and anything that can get them there. Sometimes we we advise them to have some uh, specific glasses that can stop the blue light so mm-hmm. it can stop them from waking the brain up. Uh, I, I haven't used the chili pad but, or, or products like that, but I hear and know people that really like them and they're good. So it's it's anything to get cozy. And they're really simple things that, you know, some of them that are, are the traveling uh, to actually take your own pillow with you because your pillow has your scent and it's familiar and it helps you uh, drop into deeper sleep. There's all sorts of things. And then there are some more complex things around shifting your um, circadian rhythm with 
some, uh, this, this is for a traveling executive. Someone flying overnight has to arrive from the US to London and perform at, quote, the boardroom. You can actually do some fasting stuff pre and during the flight and then arrive and eat and shift the uh, circadian rhythm to make them be more alert and on the time zone quicker. There's some things like that that we do mm. uh, that are that are quite interesting, but less products. And and the form goggles, by the way, I, ju- I just had a conversation with the founder with form uh, a couple of days ago, and and I I have a pair of those, and, and I have exactly the same. They're a great educational tool. They're yeah, really good. They really they're, are. They're good. Yeah. So if you have the right relationship with all of this stuff, I think it's. It's really good, really useful. That's exactly right. I like how you put that. Have the right relationship with all your data, everybody. <laughs> there you go. Have you used the, um, when we, we've been traveling and some of the people we work with, the the app Time Shifter for the jet lag? That's no. actually It's quite a good little just app. You know, it just helps you before you go, you know, this is when you drink your coffee This is, and you just shift your time according to where you're going to go. And we've played around that when we travel to Australia, even with our little ones and uh, when we used to be able to travel. Um, we would – I remember how old was our little daughter? She was probably almost one and her bedtime was always around that 8 o'clock but we pushed it back and back and back to her bed was about 11.30 p.m. So we were going for walks, you know, at 10 o'clock at night and everything. So when we got to the plane in L.A., she was still wide awake and then boom, she she slept for most of the trip. And when we got to Australia, she was almost right on the clock right away. And it was kind of this shifting the time. We did it over two weeks with her. You know, it was 15 minutes a day, so it wasn't dramatic. But um, it's an interesting way to get people ready for those big trips. Harder for executives when they're going New York, London, back and forwards or California, London, you know, just for the weekend. But Interesting app if people are traveling a lot. I think it's called Time Shifter or something. Um, uh, do you do any melatonin or CBD you know, for sleep, I haven't done it, but I'm, I've had a few guests mention it, and I'm just wondering what it, you're thinking. Yeah, the the whole CBD thing is very interesting. Uh, I think there's real credence behind it across multiple areas, and I am uh, un- unashamedly a complete novice. I, I honestly don't know that much about Me either. it. Uh, Me either. I haven't yeah. done much. Yeah, no, I was just curious. No, I haven't. Is uh, is the truth. Yeah, no, I had a couple of doctors have come on, Dr. Ara Sapaya and Dr. Maroon both said, oh, yeah, do this, this. I was like, okay. It's something i got to look into a little bit more. But um, what about working with the, your athletes? You know, you, you seem very in tune. So working with their mental strategies and getting them ready for, for key events, I guess especially your, your professional athletes, um, are you working with them on their visualizing or affirmations or is that just a, a day-to-day thing that you're doing with them? I think a little bit of both, uh, athlete dependent. There are, you know, there are some athletes that you are, as, as I go back through the sort of list of them, so, some that you are deeper on the emotional, psychological it, it, and straying into visualization, et cetera. You're, you've got a deeper relationship uh, than others that you just keep out of the way in many ways. And so I think uh, I think a part of it, working with world-class athletes, it is a real journey that takes time to foster and develop. And you need to understand them as a human being. You need to understand how they react and when to try and help and support and talk and when to actually just stay out of the way. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, so the, and, and I should say, you know, occasionally sometimes you, you go and get help from outside as well, because I think a part of being a coach of, uh, of someone that's at the, towards the top end of their sport, su- supporting them with a team, whether it's a better massage therapist or strength trainer or a brain mechanic, whatever it might be, I think that's a, a part of the role as well. But, um, you know, I, I in, in the coaching career with just a couple of examples, Jesse Thomas, I, I tended to speak to Jesse pretty much every day, but really just short bites. And it was very important before bigger races that we framed the mental approach to it. So what does this mean? How does it, I'll never forget he did his first Ironman. And I, I always try and give something that becomes the lightning rod from the mental side. For him, it was, I want you to go and train all day. Uh, he, he, and he's like, what are you talking about? And it's ridiculous. You know, it's another stupid Dixon thing, but my, he'd never done an Ironman before. And he's a real racer. You know, he's very brave. He would, he would step out and he would go and do things. And, and I knew that his, if he could go and have a training mentality and then, he would get to the point of the race where it really counted and he would be ready to race. And it really helped him from a structure. So there are things that I, I think you could do versus someone like Sam Appleton, who's highly autonomous and is has an amazing consistency of stepping up in the big days. I would, with Sam, I'd just say two weeks before the race and then just remind him one week before, I would say something very simple to frame the psychology or to give him context and confidence. And then he takes care of the rest. He, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't need, he doesn't rely on me to say, how shall I visualize? He's got his process. It's not. And so any intervention that I did as a coach there, if I overtalked it would probably dismantle his process or potentially make him less confident. Why, mm. why is he talking to me too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. so, what do you mean? What, is to me is he lot. worried? Something's yeah. wrong. Exactly. <laughs> and, and actually, a, a, real, yeah, a real life example of that, just to, to give context, sometimes it's helpful to listeners, is you know, the, the race that happened, Challenge Daytona, uh, late last year. I said to Sam, it, probably 10 days out of the race, he had trained very, very well over the couple of months prior, but he hadn't raced like anyone else for give or take a year. And so I felt like it was important that we acknowledged the lack of clarity of what that would be like. So I said, you know, Sam, I have absolutely no idea. I know you're in great form. I know you're really fit. I know that you're, you know, you're, your training has been going well, but you haven't raced for a year. And so I have absolutely no idea how you're going to race. <laughs> and that's okay. Cause nor do you, cause no one can predict that. But what I do know is that you're in a really good place. And the thing that you can control is that you just go and give it your best you know, effort. And I'll talk about that in a second and ask your body the question, what are you going to give me? And that shifted because what that enables the athlete to do is to not focus on 
How's it going to happen? You know, oh my God, I haven't raced. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You can't answer that before you go and ask your body that. And so acknowledge it. It's a feeling and then liberate yourself off of it. And mm-hmm. the only thing I said for him in, at, at, uh, in Daytona was I want you to be a protagonist all day. And so I want you to move to the front of the bike and I want you to be aggressive on the bike. I want you to make the bike as hard as you can for everyone else. And then let's see what you can do on the run. And that's how the race basically laid out. He had a great he day. Did, he, he did, who did he get? He got fifth? He got, uh, gone terrible. I think he got sixth. Yeah. Was it six? Um, I knew he was up there. We did go and watch and I, I was, I know there was a bit of shifting in the places right towards the end there. Um, but I, I've a, it was a great race. I have a funny story talking about when, you know, if you do or you don't say something to somebody. So we had a, um, our massage therapist in, in, in Boulder, Marcus Mejias. And he worked on all the athletes living in Boulder and and he always finished your massage before you'd head off to a race and say, Greg, you're ready. You're ready, Greg. You know, and he's Venezuelan and just really excited. And, you, and it was that little, thanks, mate, I, I got it. Anyway, I don't know if you remember Richie Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richie would train with us and Marcus used to, you know, massage Richie all the time and, Anyway, Richie was doing Hawaii Ironman and I think Ben Hoffman had flown Marcus down to work on them both and uh, Richie got his massage from Marcus and he didn't get the you're ready when he left and it, and it hung on him. It hung on him. And he, the fact that he still remembered it years later, you know, it was like, yeah, he never told me you're ready and I knew I'd have a crappy race. It was like <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> you get used to what people say to you and it's like, yeah, you say too much or you taste, say too little, you can really do some damage. Um, one, one final area I want to chat to you about um, before I let you go is, is the nutrition and the fueling that's obviously you've talked about many athletes are under you know calorizing is that a word calorizing it's a lovely word we'll use it (laughs) (laughs) but but uh what is your suggestions firstly i guess for everyday life or do you kind of look at everyday life and then look at fueling for training and racing as two separate things it's interesting you say that. So I, for both athletes and lifestyle athletes, if you want to call it that, pros and, and amateurs, I, I tend to break apart from, a, again, an educational standpoint. I talk about fueling and I talk about nutrition. So fueling are the calories that wrap workouts during and then following workouts. And then for the rest of, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinners and snacks, I kind of think about nutrition. And the reason for that is that, the rules and needs are a little bit different when you're either prepping for a workout, going through a workout, or refueling following a workout than they are when you're just having lunch and training's nowhere near it. Uh, you know, but, and, and a great example is a Coca-Cola is not a good thing in daily life, but at mile 18 of a marathon, it could be a really good thing and it's appropriate. And so, you know, it's a, an extreme example. I... If there is one habit, elite athletes and and lifestyle athletes, particularly lifestyle athletes, people that are training in the morning and going to work, the number one habit that I really focus on first, very deliberately, is post-workout fueling. I think that the two biggest habits or two biggest mistakes that endurance athletes tend to make is number one, not going easy enough in the easy workouts. They always tend to lift the bottom up and it, it 
creates fatigue and it suppresses the performance in the key sessions. But number two, not following, not fueling post-workout. And that is two reasons. The first is, yes, you want to replenish your glycogen and start protein, muscle repair, et cetera. But it's really a, in, in a regular life, it's a stress management tool because when you're training and exercising, your cortisol and other stress hormones are really high. And that's good because it helps you perform. But you don't want to do a morning bike trainer workout and then have those circulating stress hormones pumping through you at 9.30 in the morning when you're trying to focus and make decisions and lead teams and whatever it is. And a great suppressor of that is protein. And so getting protein in following a workout is really good because Yes, it begins muscle repair, so it helps with consistency and adaptations, but also it satiates, it brings down stress hormones. And then adding carbohydrate to it, yes, you replenish, but it, it that will prevent, it also feeds the brain because the brain relies on glucose for energy. So it helps with a person's focus and clarity and decision-making and energy. And by doing that, you prevent a symptom that I like to coin athletic starvation. In other words, it equips the person to be able to make, make smart eating decisions throughout their work day, avoiding foods that are going to create lethargy, like big starchy carbohydrates in the middle of the day, because the body doesn't need them or demand them. And getting really, really hungry. So they go into the canteen or go into the kitchen and have a massive sandwich with a slice of pizza and a cookie afterwards. And that stems from people being underfueled. So if we can get that right first and you do that as a habit, there's that word again, it frees up to then focus the rest of your meals, which I call health meals, basically, you know, things that are there to support your immune system, your health, your, your overall health and energy, your tissue repair build those around protein, good oils, and of course, tons of nutrients. And I can say it because I'm with you, vitamins, not vitamins, but vitamins and minerals. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a vitamin person myself. <laughs> there you go. All right. So I'm with you. So I can, I'm, I'm so am dirty Americanized that, uh, that I tend to stray towards vitamins. Is, it vi is American vitamin? American is American is vitamin. And, I and forget which one's which half the time of anything these days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's fantastic, mate. I really, that is spot on. I think understanding the refueling with the protein and carbs, I think you explained that so, so well. That's just, do, are you doing any hot colds kind of therapy with people? Do you do much of that? Do, do a lot of, uh, well, many people have been restricted from doing much heat unless they have a, a sort of sauna in their, their kitchen. We, we do a lot of, um, sauna protocols and and stray more towards heat globally uh sauna protocols for athletes that are getting ready to race or in hot environments uh you know a stimulus to boost blood volume etc cetera, etc cetera. and then from recovery we tend to stray more towards heat uh mm. ice with um ice or cold therapy with athletes that have a particular point on the body that needs ice but the whole yeah. yeah the whole the whole cryotherapy and ice baths and you know we used to do them when i was an athlete etc i think they have more application for someone like an nba player that has to uh play a game tonight and is playing a game tomorrow night 
And they're not mm-hmm. looking for adaptations. They're looking for reduce the swelling, get ready, go again. But there, there's a lot of interesting research that goes both ways on ice intervention, the, the cold water plunge or the cryotherapy that can actually interfere with adaptation. So, and on top of that, a, a lot of athletes that I work with just don't feel that good after ice. And, mm. and so I tend to stray more towards heat globally. It's interesting, isn't it? I, we, we've played around with it so much over the last 25 years and I've actually found the cold therapy now being a non-athlete, if you want to call it that, for my brain, mm. it lights up. I just, a cold shower, a dip in a cold pool, that has been amazing. I, it's not for athletic performance, but rather my my brain. And then the heat work that I do, again, like you said, it is more for an athletic side of things. I actually feel better doing the heat work. It's almost like an extra workout to some degree. Um, yeah. But, but yes, the, the, we used to do a ton of ice work and then as athletes and then we sort of backed off a fair bit thinking, well, maybe we're not getting enough adaptation from the training we just did. Um, anyway, mate, I want two big questions before I let you go. What's, uh, and you've covered so much here that this might be a bit hard, but what is one tip you have for people on how to become or optimize their lives? Just one, one key thing. If we, if we were to leave this podcast with one thing that somebody should go to do their life to optimize it, what, what, what would it be? Embrace the journey. Ah, it, I love it. <laughs> embrace the journey. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, that, that would be it. And then, okay, the second one, if, if you could do a Zoom call with any living person, who would it be and why? Oh, it's interesting because uh, uh, I'm just about to get to do this. So it's pretty amazing. But I'll answer it in a professional sense, which was uh, you, you emailed me saying you said you're going to do this. And someone that I've always been fascinated with and followed is a, is a guy called Stephen Seiler who um, mm-hmm. a very well-known physiologist. And so I answered it through a professional lens. But that question, I thought, you know what, I'm going to reach out and see whether he actually have a conversation with me and uh, appear on the show. And he reached back out and said, I'd love to. So, uh, oh, so, well so, done, so, thank, so thank you, Greg, because you were the catalyst to actually kick me in the butt and reach out and say, could it happen? You know, could, could you do it? But, isn't, uh, this the, isn't this the best having a, a podcast where – it forces you to do things that you may never do to, to, to reach out to somebody and see if you can have a conversation with them. And then when they say, yes, it's like, wow, Oh, that's, it's, it's really amazing. Isn't it? I just feel like it's such an opportunity and we're so fortunate. We, we are. And I, I will say I've, I've never done a show that I've had a guest on or appeared on a show and, and today absolutely included that I haven't learned something as well. Mm. And, uh, and so I, I want to thank you because I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But uh, but and it's so great. To, I've got to say, it's so great to get to to meet you and, and chat to you because uh, I, I was sort of jokingly serious earlier. Just the icon in the sport, and so it's fantastic to get to spend some time with you and really sort of learn some stuff about you. And I'm, I'm really excited that you've agreed to come back on the Purple Patch podcast that we're doing in a few weeks because we can turn the tables and we'll we'll dig into all of the juicy bits on your end. 
Oh, mate, it's been, it's just been absolutely wonderful. I can't wait until we're both so big on the podcast and we have our own studios. We can sit down with a glass of wine and beer. Actually, we don't even need our own studio, so I'll just come to your place and we'll we'll do this in person when the lockdowns are all lifted and we can all share beers, go for a mountain bike and, and share some stories in person. But this has been absolutely wonderful, Matt. So thank you so much again and um, I really appreciate it. And now finally, where is the best place for people to sort of listen or follow you obviously the purple patch podcast for people listening that's another great podcast you should put on your list but where, where else yeah and they can they can find the details of that and everything else at our website which is purplepatchfitness.com and then on the interweb our uh, our twitter is at purple patch and our instagram confusingly is slightly different at purple patch fitness I know it's fine. All the names suddenly get taken up. It's like I'm at the Greg, the Greg Bennett show on Instagram, but I'm just at Greg Bennett show on Twitter because it had to be shorter. It's like, ah, oh. there it is. You know, all right. Pain. Well, all right. Well, thanks everyone for listening um, and all your feedback and everything. You can find all the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and everything at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. And Matt, thanks again, mate. Stay on the line. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.